Revelation 13. The dragon stood on the shore of the sea, and I saw a beast coming out of the sea. It had ten horns and seven heads, with ten crowns on its horns, and on each head a blasphemous name. The beast I saw resembled a leopard, but had feet like those of a bear and mouth like that of a lion. The dragon gave the beast his power and his throne and great authority. One of the heads of the beast seemed to have had a fatal wound, but the fatal wound had been healed. The whole world was filled with wonder and followed the beast. People worshipped the dragon because he had given authority to the beast, and they also worshipped the beast and asked, Who is like this beast? Who can wage war against it? The beast was given a mouth to utter proud words and blasphemies and to exercise its authority for 42 months. It opened its mouth to blaspheme God and to slander his name and his dwelling place and those who live in heaven. It was given power to wage war against God's holy people and to conquer them. And it was given authority over every tribe, people, language, and nation. All inhabitants of the earth will worship the beast, all whose names have not been written in the Lamb's book of life, the Lamb who was slain from the creation of the world. Whoever has ears, let them hear. If anyone is to go into captivity, into captivity they will go. If anyone is to be killed with a sword, with the sword they will be killed. This calls for patient endurance and faithfulness on the part of God's people. Then I saw a second beast coming out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb, but it spoke like a dragon. It exercised all the authority of the first beast on its behalf and made the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast, whose fatal wound had been healed. And it performed great signs, even causing fire to come down from heaven to the earth in full view of the people. Because of the signs it was given power to perform on behalf of the first beast, it deceived the inhabitants of the earth. It ordered them to set up an image in honor of the beast who was wounded by the sword and yet lived. The second beast was given power to give breath to the image of the first beast, so that the image could speak and cause all who refused to worship the image to be killed. It also forced all people, great and small, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hands or on their foreheads, so that they could not buy or sell unless they had the mark which is the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let the person who has insight calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man. That number is 666. This book is the gift that keeps on giving, isn't it? Um, so let's pray, and, uh, and then we'll dig into Revelation 13. Lord, we thank you for this, uh, the words that come from you, and we pray that we would um, feed them, feed on them, uh, take them in, and let them uh, nourish our souls and direct and instruct us and train us, and Lord, that they would increase our faith this morning, that you may be glorified in our lives. Amen. So there's, uh, there's one thing that's, that's going on with... Uh, revelation which is giving us and at least uh, amongst many things but that is an insight into the unseen realities of of the world and uh, and it's really quite eye-opening isn't it and it brings us to look and consider some pretty out there stuff as we're kind of getting to see these unseen realities and perhaps it's a bit of a wake-up call for those of us who live in a culture where the constant message is that the things that we see and experience are all there is And true life is found here and here alone and nothing beyond here. And so maybe there's some amongst us who who, who aren't sure uh, about the truth or the relevance of what we're seeing. Or at the very least, those around you would be very unsure about the truth and relevance of what we're seeing. But but think about it this way. If, 
if this stuff about Satan and God and, and the things that Revelation is showing us is true, wouldn't it be the case that Satan would have most interest in us not believing it to be true? Wouldn't he have a vested interest in people disbelieving it and, and, and living as if it is untrue and not relevant to life, as so many people are, because then he can go about his terrible work of disrupting people's relationship with God without us even knowing it. So as, as I just want to say, as we dig into Revelation 13, because what we get is we get a deeper dive, if you like, on Sato's MO for, for his attack in the world. We, we saw it last week, and we get, it, we get to, to see it much more deeply this week. We, we saw last week that Satan is a defeated enemy, but he's going down swinging. And so he's on the attack. And we, we've seen it really through this series, referred to it a few points. There's really two points of his attack, really, on one hand, he comes to us and he pounds and he beats the church and he persecutes and he oppresses. And yet with the other hand, he comes with an open hand and beckons us in and invites us and, and, and uh, entices people away from knowing and loving God. It's persecution and it's seduction. And that's fleshed out for us today a bit more in Revelation 13 in these two beasts that, that, that we meet. You see, Satan gets others to do his dirty work. That's the sort of guy that he is. And he lurks behind the scenes. And so in verse 1, uh, there is Satan as the dragon standing on the shore of the sea. And he beckons to him these two beasts to come and do his work on our earth. This is like his black ops team going out into the world. And, and, and as we meet these two beasts, we're going to go through them in a bit of detail. We just need to see that they're not a particular individual that appears at, at one point in history. They're not um, a, a particular um, or, or a particular kind of institution or something, but they're types of people and types of institutions that rise up throughout history and are in the world, even today. And what they do, this two-pronged attack of these two beasts, is they, is, is, is they deceive people and they draw people to false worship. Now, as, as, as we see these visions, as we, as we get the insight into this, the purpose of it is, is to help us to see and understand this so that we know how the enemy is going to attack and so we are ready to overcome. So it's actually a really hopeful message in the end, but we've got to reckon with, with what's coming our way. So we're just going to look at these two beasts. And the first one really is in, in, in the first half there. It's helpfully split up in, in these church Bibles on page 1,242. If you haven't got it open, do open it. And the first beast is this. And this is the message to us. Endure the beast of worldly political power. Endure the beast of worldly political power. See, the Bible calls Satan the ruler of the kingdom of the air. And we see his claim to political power and to rule in the world and how he uses it in this first beast as it rises up out of the sea. We read about this beast that has ten horns representing, uh, that's imagery for power, and it has these ten crowns, a claim to rule and authority. And this beast, we read, sits on a throne with great power and authority, all of it given to it by Satan, who commissions him to rule with this power. And so this beast is representing political power in the world. And you, you might say, well, that's, that's a bit of a stretch from what you're seeing there, but it's actually confirmed to us elsewhere in the Bible by the prophet Daniel. Now, remember, we said this a few weeks ago. We're going through this gallery of revelation, seeing all these visions, and our tour guide on that gallery is the Old Testament, showing us what these things mean, showing us what's going on with them. 
And so when we, when, when we go back there, uh, we, we, well, no, sorry, in Revelation 13, we read about this beast, and it resembles a leopard. It has feet like a bear and a mouth like a lion. And this looks just like these four great beasts that Daniel saw 600 years before. And Daniel sees these different beasts, and he's troubled by all that he sees. So he asks this heavenly being, what's, what's the meaning of, of all this? And I'm just going to read the answer, the explanation that Daniel was given in Daniel chapter 7. Here's the meaning of these four beasts that Daniel sees. The four great beasts are four kings that will rise from the earth. But the holy people of the Most High will receive the kingdom and will possess it forever. Yes, forever and ever. So Daniel sees these beasts and he's told they are, they are these great empires of the world around his time which opposed and oppressed the people of God. For Daniel, it was the Babylonian Empire and the Persians and the Greeks and then the Romans, one empire after another, besieging the world and God's people. Then when John sees the same thing in Revelation 13, it's like a mashup of these four beasts all in one, this kind of uber beast kind of thing. And so John is seeing this beast that represents all of the kingdoms, all of the political powers that arise from the earth through history. And this beast, we see he comes up out of the sea. Now the sea, again, the imagery is right through the Bible of this sea monster. Often he's given a name, Leviathan. And this sea monster that comes up represents kingdoms which oppose and persecute God's people. And it kind of rises up from the sea, which is a symbolic place of evil and chaos from where this great threat emerges. And so in this monster, this beast rising up from the sea that looks just like the beast of Daniel, we see all the wickedness of world empires and ruling authorities throughout history who have been commissioned by Satan to do his work of ruling with an iron fist and drawing people away from the worship of the one true God. Now, listen, we're not to make definite and absolute connections between Satan and this beast and specific world leaders or institutions. So I don't think we're meant to see in the seven heads of this monster that there are seven hills on which Rome was founded or, or the ten horns are the ten founding states of the EU or whatever else people see. But we'd see types of ways that these political powers and authorities work in the world and types of ways that Satan can use them. Because this work happens right across the world and right through history. In, in verse 3, we read that the whole world is filled with wonder and follows this beast. In verse 7, that he's given authority not only to wage war against the people of God, but also authority over every tribe and people and language and nation. And that he draws the whole world to follow him in wonder. All the inhabitants of the earth worship this beast. He advances these universal claims by his proud words and his blasphemies against God, against, God's, um, against heaven, and against the people of God. See, throughout Revelation, we're seeing this little repeated refrain that God is working to save people from every tribe, people, language, and nation. And here is Satan on the counterattack against every tribe, people, language, and nation, drawing the people of the world to follow him in wonder, disrupting the purposes of God. And trying to get devotion from all nations. This is what world powers do. And this is what they demand. Total, unconditional allegiance to them. And to their ways. And therefore they dethrone God. This is a worship war. 
Now, back in, in the old day, the empires were, were advanced most often by military power and might. They conquered lands, they ruled over territories, and they dragged people into ta- captivity, and they killed by the sword. For Daniel and the Old Testament people of God, it was that succession of great empires that came, oppressing and subduing. For John and the church in the first century, it was the Roman Empire coming across the sea and emerging out of the Mediterranean to conquer the known world at that time. We still see this kind of oppression today in the world, don't we? We see it in North Korea, where a ruler like Kim Jong-un, the supreme leader, demands worship, demands unconditional allegiance to him. And he does it with great power and force. We see it in a country like Afghanistan today, where the Taliban are coming in with a similar force and brutality to enforce their convictions and their rule and their power. But also today in the world, power and authority is often advanced by other means. It's commercial interests, it's media, it's cultural influence, it's things going out around social media and WhatsApp, forming our thoughts and our opinions, conquering our hearts, and so in the end, ruling our lives. And don't our empires and our powers in the West demand our absolute allegiance to? Don't step out of line here. Perhaps it's more subtle, but it's no less concerning as the ruling authorities in in, in our time, in our place, redefine morality that affects vast swathes of life. And those who don't get with that program and don't worship at the the altar of contemporary morality and the shrines of contemporary morality are under significant threat of losing their job or social isolation or getting cancelled or their freedoms being seriously curtailed. In recent years, there's been a drive in this country to, I think, trying to find a center ground and a unity in such a wide and diverse and pluralistic society. And so politicians have resorted to telling us what our British values are and what they must be. Now, I I know in a sense why they're doing that, but when political rulers and authorities are starting to tell us exactly what we must believe and must think and as to line up with them, they're overstepping the boundaries of what God has put them in place for. So how are Christians to respond? What, what's the point of John showing us this vision? Is it, is it just to make us super scared and, I don't know, believe in all sorts of conspiracy theories or, or whatever else? Well, no, it's not. The, the first thing I just want to say as a side note, we, this doesn't tell us everything that the Bible says about government, about governing powers and authorities and rulers. There's, there's much more uh, that, that is said about how Christians relate to governance, uh, governments. So it's not that government in the world is bad. And it's not that all governments and all empires are absolutely evil all the time. No, that is not the case. The Bible says lots of good things about governments and rulers and authorities and that God has instituted it and given it for our good. It has lots to say about Christians submitting themselves to their rulers, being good citizens. But what this does show us is that God's good gift is corruptible and has been corrupted, at least in part, by Satan. See, Satan corrupts what God has instituted and given and turns it for his purposes. And so there are points where governments go from acting under divine authority to acting as if they are the divine authority. And so when we start to see that happening, we need to to think Revelation 13, and and then we know how to respond. And verse 10 tells us what we're to do. This calls for patient endurance and faithfulness on the part of God's people. 
We're not to fight fire with fire. We're not trying to advance the kingdom of God by political power or winning cultural wars or anything else like that. That's never gone well for the church or for the gospel. No, we're to stay faithful to Jesus. We're to endure. Whatever cross pressure we come under in so much of our lives as Christians living under these ruling authorities and powers of this world, we're to endure and we're to stand firm and stay faithful to Christ. Francis Schaeffer, this Christian last century, nailed it when he said this, the first Christians were not persecuted for worshipping Jesus. They were persecuted for worshipping Jesus only. It's really profound, isn't it? And it's right on point. We need courage and we need conviction to put Jesus and Jesus alone as the one we worship, to stay faithful to him, not to compromise and mix him in with other stuff just to get by in the world. You guys know the temptation is great and it comes almost daily. So we're to endure and we're to stay faithful. And there's this promise with this in, in the book of Revelation and, and Daniel got it too. You can imagine for Daniel, it's pretty overwhelming getting this vision where basically God said, Daniel, you know, you think it's bad at the moment but there's ruler after ruler after ruler coming. It's just like pound, pound, pound. You'd think you'd be overwhelmed and, 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 and just... Yeah, just not able to cope. But did you hear the second half of the verse I read in in Daniel chapter 7? But the holy people of the Most High will receive the kingdom and will possess it forever. Yes, forever and ever. See, these kingdoms, these empires, these ruling authorities, these governments, these powers, they seem great in power. They seem fearsome. They seem awesome. They seem unending. But the people of God are just to wait it out. Patiently endure, wait it out. Stay faithful. For in the end, God's kingdom will come. In the end, his kingdom will be the one that lasts. And we will possess it forever and ever. When we we started the series a few weeks ago, we we thought around the question of whether we're on the right, right or the wrong side of history. And and the big point was it's too early to tell at the moment. And although this in Revelation 13 is a vision of Satan's power and his authority exercised through this beast of political and military power in the world, we need to remember that Satan can only pass on what he's been given and he only has what God has allowed him to have. He's always under the absolute sovereignty of God. And so we we, we see it uh, snuck away here that this beast only exercises power for a certain amount of time, 42 months. This This number comes in many forms of revelation, but it's been coming up again and again. It's 3.5. It's that period of time of suffering for the people of God, but it's limited. Yes, it's hard, and yes, they're suffering, but the time is coming to an end. It's time-bound. In fact, it's the whole period between Christ's resurrection and, and the end of history. And you see, within that time, worldly kingdoms come and they go. They rise and they fall. And and another one will always replace the one before it. This is the, the, the fatal wound that's on the head of this beast. And yet through it all, the threat of the beast remains. But in the end, it's only God's kingdom that is here. It's only God's kingdom that lasts. It's only those, we read, who are written in the Lamb's, whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Those who are trusting in his death. And in fact, who, whose names have been written in there since before the creation of the world. It is those that do not worship the beast. It is those who endure and stay faithful for the king and the kingdom that is coming. 
So endure the beast of worldly political power. Secondly, verse 11 and following, be wise to the beast of deceptive worldly ideology. Sorry, there's some big words there, isn't there? Be wise to the beast of deceptive worldly ideology. Remember, with one fist, Satan pounds, and the other, he beckons. The Bible says the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers. And so we see that in this second beast who comes out of the earth. And if the first beast is all about power and all about authority, this beast is all about deceiving people through words and through signs. We read that he exercises authority on behalf of the first beast. It's like he acts as the propaganda manager and the spokesman. And he leads all the people of the earth to worship the beast and his great power. And he does it through this emphasis on these great signs that he can perform and on these words that he speaks. And so this beast represents all of these false ideologies, these false belief systems and ideas out there in the world, including in religions through which people are led astray from the true and the living God. This is a false prophet who leads people to false worship. And very often, this is done in the service and the agenda and the glory of this first beast. This is unholy union of political power and political government and religion and ideology. You know, we see it really, obviously, I think, don't we, in, in extremist Islam through the Taliban and ISIS and places like that. But listen, this is also an issue in the Christian-influenced world that we live in. The kingdom of God never has and never will be advanced by political power and political authority. And so back, back, back along um, under the Roman Empire, when, when Christians went from getting their heads chopped off for being a Christian, to suddenly being able to get ahead from being a Christian, because the emperor, um, the only thing that changed really was Emperor Constantine converted to Christianity, and so overnight you go from basically being killed for being a Christian to it being politically and culturally advantageous. Suddenly there's some social capital in that way of life. Well, I think there's a way in which you can read that that says that was bad for the church and not good. The church became much more mixed and much more corrupt, and it did not fare so well in the years that follows. And so too today when the church jumps in bed with political power, as we see it in some parts of our world today, it is riddled with massive problems. This beast shows us that ideology and religion so often serve political authorities and powers, and that is part of Satan's attack on the world. So as a church, you want to stay well away from that. It's so tempting and it's so enticing, but it is so, so, so deceptive. Satan, you see, parades as this angel of light. And these ideologies, these ideas that people believe, these, these false religious beliefs, they sound so good, they sound so plausible and so close to the truth of God and of Christ. But ultimately, they are not the truth of Christ. And so they are no truth at all. We see, we see how this beast mimics and imitates the work of God. Do you, do you see, he looks like a lamb with two horns. We've seen a lamb before in the story, haven't we? And it's not this one. It's the lamb at the center of the throne. It's the lamb who was slain for the sins of the world. Jesus himself. And when this beast lamb here opens his voice, it's the voice of a dragon. There's no mistaking it. 
This is who, and this is what he really represents. And he provides these signs, and he provides these miracles and these images that seduce and even threaten and impress and overwhelm people and lead us astray. We've talked about it a bit already, but in the first century, there was this imperial cult. So there was like all of this emperor worship stuff going on. And, uh, and that was kind of advanced by these imperial priests who um, established and developed this whole system of worship and um, emperor worship and there were these markers that, of conformity so if you were basically in with that crowd you could get ahead in life and it was okay with you and if you weren't then you're on the outside and, and, and that's what it looked like then political, religious, economic interests all kind of bound up together you see commercial interests and money are never far from the surface of these things Part, part of this beast power here towards the end of the chapter is the ability to give people a certain mark so that they can trade and so they can get ahead because they belong. And so to you today, those who don't conform with the ideologies and the beliefs and the practices of the ways of the world around us find ourselves excluded and on the outside so often. For some in our church, your faith has affected your career pro- prospects, the work you can and can't do or you will and won't do. And so, somewhat, you've been left behind. For others of us, you're in fear of losing your job just in case you say the wrong thing in the wrong place at the wrong time. For most of us, we have this nagging sense we could, we could make life just that a little bit easier, couldn't we? We so could. Just here and there, just, we could get along better if we just loosened up a few little points and, and not stop worshipping Jesus. We could still do church on Sundays and stuff, but, but there's other stuff as well. And, you know, and just a bit more like everyone else around us, and just so we can fit in a bit more. And so tempting, isn't it? The pressure is real, and the seduction is subtle. And that brings us to uh, the meaning of the number of the beast, which you've probably been waiting for me to get to. This infamous number, 666. This isn't some supernatural number to be scared of. We don't need to get superstitious about about this or whatever else. It doesn't represent a particular person or a particular institution. I don't think it's a code for Emperor Nero's name. It's not a weird barcode or tattoo that people have. It's not a 5G chip and a vaccine or whatever else. This is a symbolic number. Listen, if you you had to give the the three-in-one God of the Bible a number, it would be 777. The Holy Trinity, the perfect and good God, full of perfection and fullness and life and beauty and holiness and goodness through and through. Seven, seven, seven. You can't beat that. And so six, six, six is an imitation of God, of the God who is there and the God who is real by this unholy Trinity, the dragon, the beast in the sea and the beast in the lands. And yet it's an imitation that just falls short in every single way. In fact, verse 18 tells us this. It says it's the number of man. If you look at the footnote, I think it gives the more helpful interpretation. Not of a man, but of man. This represents Satan and his beast working through the worldly system in the fallenness and falling short of God. It's it's a very human uh, way of thinking about it. And so it's trying to look for like, uh, like truth, but it isn't truth. It's actually a lie. It seems close to perfection, but is not achieving the perfection of God. It makes great claims to power and authority, but in the end it has none. It's less good than God in every single way. 
666 is the opposite of the God who was and is and is to come. It's the opposite of the one God, the only God, whose people were sealed in Revelation 7 with his seal on them. And in who in the past, before Jesus came, whose people used to walk around with the promises and the word of God, his name and his faithfulness tied to their wrists and around their foreheads. Those who are owned by God. Who trust in his faithfulness. And so 666 is a cry of independence from God. It's a mark of rebellion against him. It's the opposition of him from those who have bought into and invested in the worldly system and its ways. So it's not a physical mark, it's not something we're looking for like that or whatever else, but it, it is a symbol of the mark of those who've been deceived by Satan and live for the kingdom of this world. And so to close, what are we to, what are we to say and do about that as Christians? Well, Revelation 13 tells us, then verse 18 at the end, this cause for wisdom. If our response to political power and might from the kingdoms of the world is to patiently endure, dig in and stay faithful, our response to competing ideologies and belief systems and religious teachings that deceive is to be wise. To know what is true from what is false. To know Christ and his ways so that we can spot what are not Christ and his ways. And so we are not deceived. Now listen, there are so many claims to truth in the world around us. There are so many claims that present to us that they are good news for people. Whether it's the competing claims of different religions that offer a path to enlightenment or a way of salvation or whatever else. Whether it's the new morality and the new ethics that's emerging around individualism and unfettered freedom of choice in how we think about what it means to be a human and what it means to be a sexual being and a gendered being and and what it means to treat other people. Or whether it's Christian churches and Christian teachers reshaping new forms of Christian belief and Christian practice that depart from the historic faith that has been once fore handed down to us. They can come in the church as well as from outside. We need to be wise. We need to discern. And we need to make sure that we don't turn away from the gospel of Christ, the good news of who he is and what he's done, to some other gospel. Some other thing that says it's good news, but in the end, is not good news at all. And so we need to be on our guard against all forms of false religion, all forms of false ideology, whether in the church, whether in other religions, whether in society, whether they're even rising up within us at points. And so if we have the wisdom of God, which he gives to his people, we can stand firm. We can endure patiently and faithfully. And we can overcome these beasts as great as they are, as scary as they seem. We can overcome for the king that is coming and whose kingdom will one day come. Let's pray that God would do it for us. Lord, the... uh, the fear we may feel when we see these things revealed. Maybe we struggle to understand all of them, but even the things we understand are somewhat terrifying. And yet, thank you that you say, do not fear, for I am with you. Thank you that 
Christ has overcome and he has defeated all his and all our enemies. And thank you that therefore in him we do have victory. Please help us to stay patient and endure faithfully. Please give us the wisdom we need in these confusing days. And please give us the courage to trust in Christ and Christ alone, our only hope in life and death. And to live every moment of life for him. Lord, we can't do it, but by the power of your spirit we can. So please would you do it in us and through us and for us, we pray. Amen.